This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. You've lived a great life and done well for yourself. But what mark will you leave on the world? How will you inspire future generations? Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand have helped thousands of people answer exactly those questions. If you've ever wondered, what will be my legacy? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Stan and Katie Beth. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. And our guest today is Mary Vandenack. Mary is a founding and managing member of Vandenack Weaver LLC from Omaha, Nebraska. Mary, it is so great to have you on the show with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So we have some similar experience. We have the law firm, and that relates a lot to what you do. And another way that we relate is It's my understanding that we both have an approach to planning that we call legacy planning. And so can you describe a little bit about what you mean when you talk about legacy planning? Absolutely. So I do what I call objective-based planning. I think it was, was interviewing a new possible associate just last week who said that her understanding is sometimes lawyers just tell clients what they should do. And I don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but I know what I do, which is when a client comes in for an estate plan, what really matters is who are they and what do they want to achieve? What are their objectives? Do they own a business? Do they want to pass it on to their kids? Do they have some philanthropic goals? Are there any family issues that they want to address? Are they concerned with asset protection? So it's basically saying, here's what I've done financially. And this is what I have. And this is really my view of the world and what I would like to achieve in my planning. So I think sometimes estate planning, and I really don't like to use that word other than to describe estate planning is a lot more than drafting wills and trusts. So even in my pricing model, I don't bill for drafting documents because everybody thinks that they are a template that we just pull off of, you know, wealth console or something like that. But The fact of the matter is what is valuable to them is the conversations that we have about who they are and what they want to achieve. So that's, I think, the legacy. And it's also a collaboration with all of the advisors. So it's not just about me working with the client, but really, especially depending on do I have the long-term relationship. But what I've learned is that each advisor in the mix of a client has a different perspective and a different relationship. And the more that I can bring those together for the client, we can help achieve their objectives on a long-term basis. I love that. On your website, you talk a little bit about business transitions. So tell us a little bit about some of the key considerations you have and how you help your clients. What are the unique tools and strategies you use to help your clients transition a business to other family members? 
And that's an interesting progression in my practice because I was originally at a large regional firm and I left and founded my own firm primarily because I'm somewhat of a technological geek and I wanted to use tech tools differently than was being done. I think a lot of the big firms have really upped their game in that department. But at the time, my partner and I founded a firm. He was kind of the guy who understood the hardware and I understood the processes. But so originally we said, we don't want to invade relationships. We want to build relationships. And so we set out as a small firm. We started our firm in the basement out in a farm field. And we decided it was going to be the two of us and our laptops. We promptly grew to 15 attorneys at the time in six months. And we're like, ah, what were we doing? But what we set out to represent was closely held business owners dealing with their business issues and their estate planning needs. So whatever they needed personally. And that was our forte. So at that point, we were helping a lot of clients start businesses. And then as our law firm has progressed, a lot of those business owners are aging and transitioning their clients. So the key question with the business owner is, you know, starting with, do you have family members? Because I will tell you that my dad and two brothers are all, my dad's passed away, but both of my brothers are also tax attorneys. And so I was part of a family business in terms of all four of us worked together at one time while my dad was still living. And it gave me a passion about the fact that one of the great legacies that you can give to your children is a business. So where we start with a business owner is having a conversation about are there family members that you want to pass this on to? And if there are, what does that look like? Because perhaps they have four children and there are two in the business and two that are not in the business. And then a significant issue is how do you, if you have valued the business, have those kids active in the business contributed to the value? Do you give the estate equally or what considerations? And the answer is different for everybody, but that's a significant amount of conversation. And a lot of times at some point, if they're willing, I like to include the kids in that conversation so that they know the score. That's great. Stan, I know you're brimming with questions. What do you have for Mary? Well, I'm going to say this sounds just so familiar. Uh, we see this uh, with family businesses, and I don't know if you're including within the definition of family business, a family farm, but all those issues are exactly the same if, you know, in the agricultural space where you have a family that has a farm and you have maybe their three or four children, one or two of them are working with, you know, working with the parents in the farm and then the others have gone off to med school or the city, they're lawyers or doctors or, you know, whatever, you know, the it's there is that just that perennial issue of what's what's fair and what's right and it may not be equal and so you really have to think through that i had a client one time who said i'm going to leave my son a larger percentage because he's worked with me for all these years and my wife and i've been able to take these trips but only because he was involved in the business with us and if he hadn't been involved in the business we wouldn't have been able to do that and by the way i don't think i've paid him enough so he left him, you know, we went through a very careful process, built a spreadsheet to calculate what the percentage allocation was going to be. And so that's a really, yeah, I mean, what you're describing sounds just really familiar. And that also, I'm guessing, I don't know how your practice works, but I'm guessing that you work with financial advisors and the problem that you're describing here really does have, you know, have life insurance really written all over it. 
So tell me how you work with financial advisors to solve this problem. So, and that's one of the things that we love to do. We met with some some financial advisors who just started a, a new business that are a break off from a group yesterday. So we were actually having the conversation about how do we work together, right? So a lot of times, and again, it depends a little bit on who has the primary relationship. And we might also include you know, the accountant, financial advisor, and if there's somebody other than the financial advisor handling other types of insurance, personally, I like to have everybody at the table. Because again, each has their different perspective. And part of that discussion is bringing those minds together to talk about, okay, what is this business? What does it look like? If we have, because most of the time, and let's talk about the agricultural world, because I'm in Nebraska, we have a ton of agricultural clients, whether it's farmland or cattle ranchers. And most of those clients have their wealth tied up in the land and the cattle. And in most cases, if you have the two that went off to the city and became the lawyer and the physician, and you have the two that remained at the farm, and I actually have a couple scenarios that, you know, which very generally would be exactly, I've got one case, let's see, I'm just going to make this up, but let's, by way of example, that one of the kids became the farmer, the other of the kids became the rancher. And they're sharing the land that mom and dad bought and accumulated. And then we have the physician and the lawyer in Omaha. There's not a huge amount of cash. Mom and dad would like the rancher and the farmer to be able to continue to farm and ranch. And maybe a better example than the doctor and the lawyer is might be somebody who doesn't have as much income as a doctor and a lawyer might or hopefully has. And they want to cash out as soon as mom and dad are gone. And it's a really typical circumstance that mom and dad appreciate that they want to get the benefit of their wealth, but they also don't want to put the two kids who've remained in the business in a difficult position. So that's one of the places that we're often looking at insurance as a strategy. And as you know, Stan, there's a lot of different ways to build insurance into the picture. Yep. So it sounds like this is a big part of your practice. It is a significant part. We have, again, we're in Nebraska, so that's where there is a lot of wealth. We also have a lot of Berkshire wealth as a result of Warren Buffett's presence, right? Right. So we have an interesting, but I would say our ag practice is about a third of what we do. And we recently merged with, my favorite story is that I worked with a young tax attorney 30 years ago. I think it was that many years. I think I've been practicing that long. Frightening in my dad's office. And this gal, my dad got sick and passed away young from leukemia. And during that time, this young lady at the time decided to leave and go do a different type of practice. And over the years, I would mention her and say, what a waste of a great tax mine. Well, she recently merged with us and she's in a rural town here. So that's built that made that practice even more vital for us. So there's a lot in the area that she's in. So we have an office now in a small town, but we love doing the ag and cattle work. And we actually have related industries as well. So we represent the farmers and the ranchers, but we also represent, we represent some of the co-ops that have been created under the new tax benefits. And so a whole variety of related businesses. I've worked with businesses that own the harvest stores that put in the irrigation systems. I mean, there's so many businesses in that industry 
And the other story I like to tell is very early in my career, I didn't understand all the different types of tractors. And so when you talk about a cat, a cat is a very specific, I was like, oh, does it meow? I'm being a little facetious when I say that. But the client then sent me this beautiful collection of all the different types of vehicles that are made in that business. And I had the opportunity to represent one of the dealerships. So it's a lot of interesting, but those business exit issues, working with the financial advisors, addressing insurance. So it's some people think insurance is all about estate tax, but liquidity in an estate is a significant issue, especially when you have the family business being a significant part of the wealth and we want to avoid having to liquidate. Yeah. One of the things I've found that's particularly true in the ag space, this is also true with other kinds of businesses, but I think it's even more true in the ag space is the sense that families have that there's something something about farming, something about farmland that really transcends the mere the merely economic value of the land. There's something that carries with it values, emotions, history, tradition that may not be true if, you know, if it's a pharmacy or, you know, some other kind of business. And so one of the things I'd be interested to hear is you've done a fair amount of work in this space. Have you, have you worked with clients that have had that, that attitude about their farm? And it, are there any strategies that you have worked with clients to implement that are designed to maybe capture and preserve those stories the traditions of the farm. And we haven't talked about this before. I know I'm catching you cold with this question and you may not have had that. I'm just curious to know. Oh, no, it's a great question. And one of the gifts of coming into a family business is that I still have clients that my father represented. Sometimes I'm representing the third or fourth generation. And I know that there's a lot of stuff out there that says, hey, the first generation starts, the second generation builds, the third generation destroys. That's not what I'm seeing in my practice. And so maybe my practice is unique and maybe that's part of having a chunk of it being in the egg and cattle industries. But what's really, and I'll just tell you a general story. So I have a client who owns multiple parcels of farmland and I have long learned to respect things like they will refer to this you know, quarter section as being the dillywag quarter, right? And right. that's because that's who owned it back when you could first own land in the state of Nebraska. And if you put the legal description on a schedule of assets when you're showing it, they are not going to know which parcel you're talking about. So one of the things that I've taught all of the attorneys in my office is when we are dealing with farmland, find out how they refer to this piece of farmland. And so we have a column that shows the dillywag, you know, quarter section or section or whatever the case might be. Then we put the legal so that we have the legal description and then we build the history out. And I've learned, and then I also show how it was acquired because part of that on the planning end, when you talk about, I think in the agricultural realm, legacy is really strong. And they might be willing to say, I know in several plans we will have, it's okay if they sell this acres, you know, this parcel and this parcel, but this parcel needs to stay. So if we ultimately decide, let's say we put some insurance in place, but land values here have skyrocketed the last few years, 
So we have these couple of the children who like to cash out. And at the time we put this insurance in place, it was hard to anticipate the current increases in land value. So we're open to selling a couple if that comes up. Or in Nebraska, we've seen a lot of farmland get sold at huge amounts for development. So these are the ones, but let's preserve this particular parcel that I got from my great grandma. This is the last one that gets sold. And the other things that we identify them by is, is this dry land, pasture land? Is this irrigated? What type of irrigation? Because that affects the land value. And then you have all the different you know, access. So with a lot of the farmland, the way that the land comes together, they were just farming multiple parcels together. And if you try and sell something off, you have to consider is there access to the land? Do we have four houses back here? And I'm actually dealing with a situation where we have four family houses on a farmland and we have the state coming through wanting to create a resources district trying to figure out how to keep access to the children who want to stay on the land they have. So there's a lot of things, but we really try and preserve that legacy in the form of the documents that we create. And even in the trust, we will refer to parcels if we are you know, giving specific parcels or referring to them we will include the name that the client gives them. Is it common for you to build in, in the trust or in an LLC document, is it common for you to build in, let's say, incentives for family members? You know, one of the things that we've done is, is provide that if you're a family member and you rent farmland from the trust or from an LLC, you get to rent it at some discount. Is that something you've ever done? So we've done a lot of different things. So there's actually developed by, I think it was University of Iowa in Iowa is where I ran across it several years ago. There are kind of some incentive leases. And I'm actually an advocate of using some kind of incentive farm lease for the kids that are doing the farming, because then that gives some benefit to the kids that are not involved in the farming. So there's that's one of the structures that I've used. We also... Well, within the LLCs, a lot of times try and design them again so you can take some of the land, split it out. You could actually take an LLC and we've split those up, things like that as well. So there's a whole lot of strategies in that regard. Yeah, there's so much room for, for creativity. And of course, you always have to think about how do I balance the interests of these younger generation family members that want to be actively involved in farming and the interest of the family members that we also love and care about who want to be doctors or lawyers or insurance agents or whatever and move to Omaha, right? So you've got to balance that so that the, you don't engineer into the plan something that creates an in, a structure that results in internal resentments over time. Which is sadly typical, right? So yep. it's not uncommon. And that's in my discussions with clients, even to the extent we do put land in an LLC. We talk through the provisions of how somebody can get in or out. Because one of the situations that you don't want to be in is one that I've been dealing with in the past and many times over, but this is the general scenario, is mom and dad leave assets in an LLC, leave it to four kids, but essentially, let's say five, that'll be easier. So I'm going to give this one to five kids and we have three of five kids involved in the farming and they have control over the LLC and whether there are any distributions. So one of the things we do is usually try and talk about mandating some type of distribution. But in 
some cases, if you have the farm kids totally in control, which is somewhat understandable, they should control the operations, clearly. But if the two other two children have no way to access the assets that are in that and no way to force income distributions, they're not getting any value. And if they can at least have some sell. So one of the things we've done lately is to talk about, can we have that if we have a child who would like to cash out, typically we'll say the ones who are remaining in the farming can buy out some of the land and make, you know, distribute that. And we usually use a discounted or long-term pricing model so that it's going to like match up with cash flow. And well, actually, I think you mentioned some of the cash flow analyses. So a lot of times we look at that cash flow analyses, as you know, there's huge variations from year to year in your income in that industry. So we'll usually run out like a 10-year. That's more than you typically do when you're looking at business exits. But in the agriculture industry, we'll look at a fairly significant time and say, what could be cash flowed and set potential terms of a buyout? The other thing is typical to say is, if you want bought out, we're going to buy you out, but it's going to be at 80% of fair market value because I really want to favor keeping the land and the farm intact, but I respect your desire to buy out, but I want to make it very, very easy for the two kids. So just realize that you're going to give up 20% if you don't stay in and you put them in a position that they have to sell. These are all really good ideas. You know, the, and this is so powerful. And it's so effective. And when it's done right, it really preserves the family over multiple generations. You know, because I'll tell you, one of the things I've learned is that if you divide farmland among, you know, if you, in a typical estate plan where you don't really think about it like you're thinking about it, and you just say, divide this between my children and you divide the farm, that farm won't exist, you know, in a generation or two because it'll be sliced up into all these little parcels and, and then it'll be sold because it it really won't have the the significance that the you know that that whole unit of land had that the parents really put together to begin with. So this is powerful stuff that you do, and I think that over a long time horizon, it really makes a creates a positive impact on families. And I think it's very cool that you're able to step into your father's shoes and continue the you know continue his legacy in representing these clients in the third and fourth generation. That's an opportunity that not uh, not a lot of people can say that they have. I'm incredibly grateful for it because I'm really, I would be the one because all of my family members were going to law school. So I went off and trained racehorses instead. And I think I'd mentioned that to you before we started. And I was absolutely not going to practice law because all of the rest of my family was practicing law with the exception of my sister. And then I went and took a career inventory that said, you'd be a great lawyer. I'm the only one left in private practice standing, but it is amazing to be a part of helping families preserve legacies. I mean, we do a lot of work that isn't that, but I would say one of my real joys in what I do is doing that. And that legacy being trying to preserve the farms themselves or the land or whatever the assets are related to it, but also the family relationships. Because a poorly done estate plan that doesn't think through those issues has the risk of taking having those kids in court yelling at each other or with four or five different lawyers, which I don't think that I represent 
a set of parents that really ever wants to see that with their kids. And I think that that's preventable to a large degree with good planning. Yeah, I've always said, I think the real test of the work that we do is uh, after mom and dad are gone, are the kids coming to Thanksgiving dinner together? I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mary, you've talked a lot about your strategies for transitioning a business from one generation to the next. But I want to talk briefly about the situation where there are no family members to step into the business and the client instead sells the business. How does that change the conversation that you have about legacy planning? So we always start with, you know, that's business succession generally at that point, right? And so if there are no family members coming in, then the conversation becomes, you know, is it employees that we're going to sell to? Or is there a third-party buyer? What does that buyer look like? Who do we find to help us sell the business? And then assuming we sell it, what does life look like afterwards? Because that's another thing that those who have been completely involved in their business their entire life and their wealth has been in their business, they may have been taking generous amounts of cash out of it. It's still a different thing when you convert that business into cash. So then the legacy planning becomes a little bit different matter. So there's how do we transition this business? What are our options? And what does life look like after? And my personal people ask me, when should I start succession planning? Well, really, you should start that the day that you start your business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's see. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about is on your website, you talk about being a wellness visionary and you consider yourself to be a wellness visionary. So take a few minutes and tell us what you mean by that and how you blend all of these things together to do the best possible job for your clients. So I will tell you that I would be a person who lost a brother to suicide early in my adulthood. And without sharing all the facts of that, it was a very difficult situation that blew my family apart at that moment. And the other thing is that going into private practice is, you know, the demands of being a lawyer can be significant. So a decision I made after my brother passed away is that I was personally going to focus very much, no matter what I was doing in life, on the wellness aspect of life. And I don't necessarily you know, look at like this whole work-life balance concept so much because I draw a lot of energy from my work. So I like to talk about where I draw my energy at a given moment in life. But it was funny because I'm actually one of those who's a really happy lawyer. I love what I do. It is, there's never a day that I'm looking at the clock saying, is it time to go home yet? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm running out of time again. And I have other commitments. So that's a huge blessing that I have. But I know that's not true for all. Some people are, you know, and our profession has a high rate of alcoholism, mental illness that just doesn't get attended to. But wellness is way bigger than that. It's like if you don't have a mental illness, you don't have any, we want to prevent that. I don't want to be 50 some years old and falling over of a heart attack because I didn't take care of myself. So my advocacy for wellness. So you may have noticed on the website, I don't know if they have it on there. I actually, while others during the pandemic were watching, power watching Netflix, I have a certificate of positive psychology from University of Pennsylvania. And I'm about 25% of the way through my social work degree in clinical counseling from University of Michigan. 
I've taught yoga for 25 years. I've also taught other fitness classes and I'm a mindfulness instructor and I try and practice those principles. So it's funny because I do a lot of national presenting and writing, but what I seem to be better known for is the fact that I care so much about well-being. So whenever I, I am at a conference, I am invariably and really feel privileged that they think of me asked to teach a mindfulness session or a yoga class. And I think it's really important in our profession to kind of bring some of the positivity to the table because we are dealing with death, family, money, you know, taxes, a lot of really personal issues. And I always train my young associates, remember the coming to see us can be like going in to get a root canal. And so while it might be clinical to us on a daily basis, don't start the conversation talking about the taxes you're going to save them. Find out who they are, where they're coming from. I've had many clients will get up and walk out of the room when they're ready to sign a document because they're afraid of death. And so if we stay well as lawyers, I think we're going to be much better representatives, much more attuned to working in a team play, which I'm a huge advocate of collaborating with the other professionals involved. And so if I stay centered and I stay well and I encourage those around me to do so, I think we have a better world as well as a better profession and do a better service. Absolutely. I love that. Is there anything that we did not cover today, Mary, that you would like our listeners to know about? I actually think we've done a great job of covering it. I'm just going to reiterate that you know, the collaborative planning is just so important in this area is to bring everybody to the table. Personally, with my clients currently, I pretty much require an annual meeting with all advisors because my position is that unless I do that, I can't really give you the service that I want to do. That's excellent. Well, I, wanna, I love that. I want to send up a cheer, by the way. I just want to echo everything you're saying, you know, I double down you on that. Yeah, I think it can't, the value of that can't be underestimated. The last thing I want is somebody that talked to me one day, then they went to the accountant who said, what was Mary thinking? And then they talked to their investment advisor who says, what was Joey thinking? I'm like, let's all, let's bring that mind power into the same room and all make sure that we're not playing the old game of telephone and that we're really talking about it so we can bring our best case forward. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. Our guest today was Mary Vandenack, and you can find out more about Mary and what she does at maryvandenack.com. And we will also link that for you in the show notes. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about Stan and Katie Beth, go to PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. You can also find links in the show notes.